0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Episode 93, Helmbrecht Returns, or The Dark Robber Knight. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today, we're continuing with Werner de Gartener's poem, Meyer Helmbrecht, from the mid-13th century. Uh, This is part two of what will be a three-part series. When we last saw our hero, well, hero is a bit strong, let's say protagonist. He was ignoring the advice of his father, the actual title character, Meyer or Farmer Helmbrecht, and leaving behind his peasant family and life of peasant labor to seek one of glamour and wealth befitting his good looks and fashion sense. He plans to find this at a local knight's court, Uh, The specific title used in the poem is Graf or Count, so a middle-grade noble. It seems, based on what young Helmbrecht says in today's passage, that this is the knight who sponsored him as a child, uh, whom he now calls his godfather, and through whom Helmbrecht believes a knightly frame of mind had been imprinted on him as a youth. One of the responsibilities of such a noble under feudalism was to help build and maintain improvements to the land attached to their title, especially transportation infrastructure. To pay for this, such nobles were allowed to collect tolls from merchants on roads and bridges and waterways, uh, as well as other kinds of taxes. In the Holy Roman Empire, the emperor, or the imperial court, controlled where tolls could be collected and set maximum limits for how high tolls could be. But in 1250, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II died, leaving a contested succession and kicking off the Great Interregnum, which would not see another emperor officially crowned until over 60 years later. During this period, there was a great deal of instability and ultimately decentralization of power in Germany, Without a strong imperial government to organize foreign wars and give a large population of knights a way to make money by bringing spoils and ransoms back from elsewhere, those knights have to start looking to their neighbors and their own people to replace that income stream. So, without clear imperial authority to control tolls and taxation, these local lords could start waylaying travelers and collecting whatever toll they wanted, uh, frequently extortionate ones. The Annals of Worms terms these telonia inusta, or unjust tolls. So, when the emperor's throne is empty, and those lords no longer have to report to a higher imperial authority, toll collection devolves into essentially a form of robbery, or at least a racket, I suppose, depending on your own economic ideology, uh, some of you might consider all taxes and tolls a form of state-sponsored robbery or racketeering. Uh, Be that as it may, it's certainly clear that people of the time recognized that this practice was abusive and, indeed, unjust in Usta. And so the popular image of the robber knights or robber barons or, in German, Raubritter takes shape though none of those specific terms is directly medieval. All three of those date from writers in the late 18th century. But even without the precise term, we can certainly find clear descriptions of the problem. I came across an interesting passage in the 1910 English translation of Charles Seignobo's History of Medieval Civilization. Uh, He attributes this quotation rather vaguely to, quote, the author of The Mirror of Chivalry of 1400. Um, My best guess is that this refers to Der Ritterspiegel by Johannes Rota, written around 1415, Uh, but there are other mirrors of chivalry out there, so I'm not 100% certain. Anyway, though this description comes a century after the end of the great interregnum, it still gives us a sense of some of the bandit qualities found among the knighthood. Here's the passage. Quote, there are today three kinds of knights. Some have neither property nor honor. These are prowlers along the highways. Others have a domain in fief of a noble, but although their property may be unencumbered, they live only by theft and by other dishonest means. They are the chevalier du vache, or knights of the cows, meaning cattle-wrestling knights. They wear gold and fine clothes, but they entertain in their castles robbers and murderers and share in their booty. Even when they have sent a challenge, a declaration of feud, they set forth while the letter is still on the way, and before the adversary could have received it, they have eaten the vash meat. The only true knights are those who fight for their prince against the enemies of their country." This passage also highlights the other local application of violence that these knights had as a means of generating income. In addition to highway robbery in the guise of toll collection, they utilized the old chivalric economy of honor to line their larders. If you can find, or invent, a basis for declaring that a neighbor, especially one of your prosperous non-noble subjects, has committed an offense against your honor, however trivial, then You could claim a right to take compensation for this damage to your honor, declare a feud, and take their movable property, generally in the form of livestock. You could also get into feuds with cities and churches or monasteries or other knights, uh, though these rather larger-scale feuds don't really factor into the narrative of Meyer Helmbrecht. However, in today's text, we will see the pretext of honor being used to justify cattle rustling and worse things. It's tempting to look at these feuds and rivalries and this intense fixation on preserving standing by hitting back hard if you're dissed uh, and draw analogies with modern criminal gangs, be they street gangs or mafia gangs. Uh, There are echoes of the Wild West there, too, and the various reasons for getting into a showdown. And there are certain similarities, especially in the ways in which these honor or reputation economies gain importance when a group is operating outside of a formal system of authority. When you don't have that higher legal authority defining what everyone's rights are and setting the terms for what's allowed in given exchanges or interactions, or even defining where people fit in a hierarchy of power, then what you are allowed to do becomes simply what you are Capable of doing successfully. What you own becomes what you have the power to hold on to or to take for yourself, and your rank in the social order is the perceived dominance you can project and, of course, back up if you're called upon. We'll come back to this after the text, um, but even though we tend to think of honor as something rather abstract and idealized, something tied to character and virtue, uh, in this context, it and almost everything about life becomes highly and rather simply transactional. And for the robber knights, as for many a gangster, it can be hard to tell when an act of violence is primarily motivated by genuine emotion, uh, e.g. anger at an insult, or when that emotion is exaggerated or feigned as a cover for a more mercenary purpose. He insulted me, so I beat him up or shot him and, oh, just coincidentally, his girlfriend is now with me or I'm driving his car around or now I'm dealing drugs or bootlegging on his former turf, uh, that kind of thing. You know, I attacked him because he insulted me or he shoulder checked me or he deliberately spilled beer on my shoes. Uh, that's why I attacked him, not because I would profit by it in some really obvious way. We can see that kind of thing at work in medieval feuds as well as modern true crime stories. Uh, Many an Icelandic saga villain makes grand claims about honor, but really just wants to get their hands on their neighbor's property. Of course, there are limits to the comparison between the medieval robber knights and modern gangs. Uh, Organized crime is by definition operating outside of an existing legal authority, The robber knights are in more of a gray area. It's not precisely true to say that they were the law and whatever they did was therefore inherently legal. Uh, You know, they weren't the president of the United States, at least as per some criminal defense arguments. Uh, There were still laws that they could violate, but it is also true that they had a great deal of latitude to operate, uh, including quite a bit in the use of violence upon their subjects. And also even if some of their abuses were technically legal, they could still be recognized as abuses because, laws aside, the knights operated within a system of cultural norms for behavior that they could violate. Uh, As I discussed briefly last episode, that seems to be more of what old Helmbrecht is responding to in being anxious about his son going off to join the local count's court. But as we'll see in today's part of the story, there may be a bit more to it than that, in that we will see old Helmbrecht caution his son that even knights, if they behave too outrageously, will have to submit to the sheriff. Indeed, he invokes a superstition that we'll talk about more in part three, concerning criminals actually being paralyzed by the power of God's wrath when they see a sheriff or judge coming for them. So, unlike mobsters or gangsters, robber knights are not always inherently outlaws, though they do generally operate in times and places where the power of the law has weakened. The big, and probably more distinctive, difference is that modern organized crime is generally deeply rooted in some kind of black market supply and distribution. They are commercial enterprises with something to sell, be it drugs or bootleg alcohol or other human beings. They actually have a commercial interest that they use violence to protect. Uh, I don't want to say that modern gangs and mafia aren't predatory. They absolutely are. But in comparison, the robber knights are almost purely predatory. Uh, They don't have an illicit good that they're trying to sell. Uh, And in that sense, they're not like organized crime. They're more like just common criminals, uh, muggers and burglars, people who are basically living one score to the next. So why not make that the point of comparison, you might well ask? Why bring organized crime into it at all? Well, for me, it comes back to the centrality of that honor economy and the fixation on insult and status. Uh, Because you do see that with gangs of all forms, um, perhaps because it actually affects their economic competition with each other. Uh, whereas it just doesn't seem to be as much a thing for the much more secretive lives of subsistence-level thieves. In some ways, maybe the best analog is the old-school image of street gangs, the the West Side Story kind of street gangs, who are more about exerting dominance over their turf, Um, something more like organized bullying if you add in a protection racket element on top of it. Anyway, really, I guess what we learn here is the limits of our historical and pop cultural analogies. Uh, What young Helmbrecht is doing, uh, at least at the outset, is not as clear-cut as Luke Skywalker initially planning on going to the Imperial Academy to become a pilot for a governmental authority uh, that some might characterize as evil, an evil galactic empire, if you will. Uh, uh, Nor is it the same as Tony joining the jets. Uh, Maybe the closest we can get is something like a Somali youth in the 1990s wanting to join up with the local warlord. It's a kind of quasi legitimate occupation, one that would grant a higher social or political status, but one that might well involve committing heinous acts as part of its recognized purview, which distinguishes it somewhat from, say, abuses by police departments, which while there may be problems with them being tacitly condoned, uh, they are still broadly recognized as violations of the law, um, or at least there are meant to be fairly clear-cut lines demarcating acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Yes, I know that sets up a whole debate about just how clear those lines actually are in how we prosecute police violence, but <laughs> we don't have time to get into that here. Um, though maybe we can be thinking a bit about that for next episode, uh, at least in terms of what the limits of the violence of legal retribution should be. There's also another bigger ethical or thematic issue to ponder as we move into the second part of the story. The German literature and linguistics scholar George Nordmeyer, uh, who wrote a few different pieces about Meyer Helmbrecht, poses the question of whether this poem is fundamentally a comic satire poking fun at the vanity of an overconfident and overambitious peasant youth, or if it's a tragedy about an innocent falling into sin and ruin. So this is a question you can consider as you listen to this next installment of the story. Does the depiction of Helmbrecht, the robber knight's squire, show us a foolish youth who is overzealous in trying to impress his new bad influence friends? Or does it reveal a fall into a sadistic and depraved criminality Uh, unlocked within Helmbrecht's heart and allowed to run unchecked in a society destabilized by the collapse of centralized authority? Is he a victim or a villain? Or, if we reject such simplistic binaries, how do you feel about him, and what ending do you think his story ought to have? I will say that we certainly open the narrative today with some strong evidence for Helmbrecht as the foolish fop. One of the ways Helmbrecht shows off his newfound cosmopolitan style is by greeting the people of his old village in trendy and high-status languages, uh, Flemish, Latin, French, and Bohemian, or Czech. That said, it is worth noting, and I'm not sure how intentionally this is on the part of the satire, or if it's just realism, uh, but these hick villagers, as young Helmbrecht sees them, are able to recognize and identify all of the languages he's using. So, is that knowledge really all that worldly? Now, old Helmbrecht does state that he can't understand the meaning of what his son is saying, but he certainly knows enough to recognize the language being spoken, and even repeat the foreign phrase accurately. Is that part of the joke? Or is it just the same thing we might have today, with a monolingual parent saying, Oh, listen to him speak French when their kid comes back from a summer study abroad with a handful of tourist phrases memorized. Nordmeyer suggests that the humor relies on one knowing all these languages, and that this proves that the intended audience for the poem was the multilingual nobility, that this is a poem of the court rather than of the village. But that would seem to say that the peasants recognizing the languages in the poem is meant to be comically absurd. Or, maybe Bavarian peasants weren't so backwards and culturally isolated, and the joke is on young Helmbrecht. Uh, He tries to put on airs, but really, he's still not that different from the other peasants. They see through it. But that also means the peasants depicted in the poem could also be a viable audience for the poem. So, listen to the scene and draw your own conclusions about exactly who the joke's on there. Uh, In a similar vein, though not as tied to class relations, Old Helmbrecht engages in a little testing of his son in this scene that's coming up. And I honestly can't quite decide if this is also a kind of joke or tease, or if we're meant to take it in earnest. Um, Is the father behaving as a character in a comic sketch who really doesn't recognize his own son because of his highfalutin ways? Or is he a more realistic portrayal of a world-wise dad who is tongue-in-cheek teasing his rather dull-witted and gullible son, who really believes he's transformed so much in his time away that his own family can't recognize him? Again, I'd be curious how you interpret this homecoming scene. Uh, let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me there, at MDT Podcast. Oh, and also, for this scene, I'll be called upon to read some phrases in French, Flemish, and Bohemian or Czech, uh, as well as several lines in an awkward mixture of Low and High German. Uh, And for the Flemish, I had to use a text-only pronunciation guide uh, for what the phrase is supposed to sound like. So, on the one hand, apologies to those of you who are speakers and or lovers of those languages, for however badly I might mangle the pronunciations— Um, But on the other hand, young Helmbrecht, who is saying them, is also not supposed to be a fluent speaker of those languages. So maybe a bit of mangling is entirely in keeping with his character and with the narrative. Oh, and one last thing. I didn't address this last episode, but I will be reading the poem across the lines, so to speak, uh, meaning trying to read to the rhythms of the syntax and the punctuation rather than the line breaks. I bring this up just because I know it might annoy some people. Uh, This is one of those sharply debated divides in poetry performance, how much to mark the line breaks in oral poetry reading. Uh, And I'll admit that with this poem and its iambic tetrameter rhyming couplets, my approach often leaves me fighting against the rhythm of the verse in order to read to the grammar. But I also think that's an effect of the translation, uh, because sentences have been reworked to fit the English to the verse form, Uh, so it's not like reading a poem in its native language, uh, like reading Dr. Seuss or even Chaucer, where it's easy to respect the lines, since the poet fit the syntax to the lines as he wrote. The translation leads to more clauses having to flow across the line breaks, and so the emphasis doesn't always fall on the rhyme at the end of the line. Uh, But more to the point... Given the length of this poem, I feel like stressing its built-in sing-song rhythm uh, might get a bit old after a while, Um, but I can see how my rendition might be just as frustrating to listen to for someone drawn to that inherent uh, and intended rhythm. So apologies to any of you, I might be driving a bit crazy with this performance choice, Uh, and more apologies to those of you who hadn't thought about it or noticed it before, but who will now be unable not to constantly notice it. Uh, them's the brakes, or not the brakes, as the case may be. Okay, at last, here's part two of Werner de Gartenera's Meyer Helmbrecht, lines six hundred and fifty three to fourteen sixty two, as translated by Claire Hayden Bell. Riding on reached castle walls, the knight who ruled within its halls, from warfare ample booty gained, and so most gladly he retained whoever did not fear to ride and fight his foemen at his side. The youth became a squire to him, his plundering became so grim, what others scarcely would attack, he thrust within his greedy sack, he pilfered anything at all, no booty was for him too small. Nor could it be too big for him. It might be shaggy, sleek, or slim. It might be straight or have a crook. All just the same, our Helmbrecht took, the peasant Helmbrecht's ill-starred son. He'd take a horse from anyone, or cow, and scarce a spoonful leave. Of sword and doublet he'd relieve a man, of mantle and of coat. He took his kid, he took his goat. He took the sheep, the ram beside. He paid it later with his hide. He'd even take a woman's skirt. From off her back, he'd pull the shirt, her coat of skin, her cloak or gown. But when the sheriff tamed him down, he felt the deepest sort of rue that he had robbed from women too. The truth of this will soon appear. Good fortune favored his first year. Fine sailing wind hummed overhead. His craft and safety forward sped. His daring then grew greater yet because the best share he would get of captured booty and of prey. But now his thoughts began to stray towards his own kin. All those that roam thus feel themselves at times drawn home. So from his lord he took his leave. His comrades likewise did receive his farewell wishes, that God might keep them in his watchful sight. Here comes a chapter to relate, which it were hard to relegate to silence and forbear to tell, if only I could picture well how those at home received the youth. Did they walk toward him? No, forsooth, they did not walk. They ran instead. All in a heap they sprang ahead, each one before the other pushed. The father, mother, leapt and rushed as though no calf of theirs had died. What did the servant who first spied the lad receive for such good news? Shirts and breeches he well could use. Did the hired folk then straight out, "'Welcome Helmbrecht!' gaily shout." That by no means did they do, for well they had been charged not to. But rather, Sir, both spoke instead, God's welcome to you, sir. He said, Min liva sota kindekin, got los och immer sala sen. That's Flemish, my dear sweet children, God bless you. His sister ran up to him then, she threw her arms around him when, with these strange words, he next addressed her as greeting to her gratia vester, your grace in slightly incorrect Latin. The young ones in the lead we find, the parents panted on behind. They showered their greetings on the lad. Dieu vous salue, French, God greet you, replied the cad to father and to mother so bohemian wise. Dobre itro, good day. Between these two, a look was sent that showed their great astonishment. The wife spoke, husband... I believe our senses fool us and deceive. He's not our child, but I contend Bohemian or else a wind. The father spoke, a Frenchman he, my son, whom I did faithfully commend to God. He's not, I swear, although he's like him to a hair. Then Gottland, sister of the youth, said, He is not your son in truth. He spoke in Latin words to me. He is a priest or monk, maybe. My faith, declared the hired hand, if I correctly understand, this youth was reared in Saxony, or Flanders, that is plain to see. Live a Kindiken, said the youth, he must be Saxon then, forsooth. Simply, the father spoke, and slow. Son Helmbrecht, is it you, or no? If my heart you wish to win, speak but a word, as all your kin and kith at home have always done, that I may know you are my son." Dieu vous salut, you say, or so, but what that means I do not know. Honor me and mother too, we both deserve as much from you. Speak a single German word. I'll rub your horse when that I've heard, myself and not my hired hand. A word that I can understand. And blessings on you, son Helmbrecht. Here Helmbrecht replies in a somewhat mangled mix of low and high German. What hebt ihr Domor Bumr sect und das Vermule dette vief? Mien purd und mienen smoken lief, Salmir ein plumper Burusmann wahrhaftig nimmer greipen an. That is, what did you, stupid peasant, say to me and the confounded woman? Forsooth, on my horse and my handsome person, no awkward peasant shall ever lay hands. This speech, alarm in him awoke, but still the father kindly spoke. If you're my son, my Helmbrecht, then tonight I'll boil for you a hen, and also roast a second one. I'll keep this promise to you, son, but if you're not Helmbrecht, my child, but foreign vend, bohemian wild, but take you to the winds, God knows trials enough I have and woes in caring solely for my own and only barest dues alone shall priest or monk receive from me. If you're not Helmbrecht, certainly, though I had amplest stores of fish, you'd never get a single dish, nor at my table wash your hand. If you're from Saxony, Brabant, or if again you come from France, it is well if in your bag perchance you have provisions with you now. For you will never then, I vow, touch food of mine I'd have you here, not though the night should prove a year. No wine or mead is on my board, Young sir, go stay with some rich lord. Now it was growing on toward night. Young Helmbrecht counseled left and right within himself, and then said he, As true as God, my help may be, I'll tell you who I am straight out. For nowhere is there round about a host who would receive me. It was not sharp, believe me, my speech to you, thus to disguise. I'll act no more in such a wise. He said, Yes, I am he, it's true. The father said, Well, say then who? The one who bears your selfsame name. The father said, Declare the same. They call me Helmbrecht, after you, your son, and also servant to I was, and but a year ago, and this I swear to you is so. I think you lie, the father spoke. Tis true. "'Then name to me the yoke of oxen four in front of you. "'That I can very quickly do. "'That ox that formerly I took so often charge "'and or it shook my stick, we called it heather. "'I'm very doubtful whether there ever farmer was "'who would not own such cattle if he could. "'And that next ox, we call him Spot, "'a prettier creature no one's got "'or ever harnessed up in yoke. "'A third too I can name,' he spoke. We called that tricky creature Spite. It is because my mind's so bright that all their names I still can tell. And will you further prove me? Well, the other ox's name is Sun. That I can name them every one, let that to my advantage be, and have the door unbarred for me. The father said, At door and gate shall you no longer stand in wait, and every chamber, every chest shall be open at your request." Misfortune may you cursed be for never has there come to me such goodly treatment of a truth as now was given to the youth his horse out to the stall was led and for himself the finest bed did sister mother then prepare the father tended to the fair he furnished food with lavish hand much as i've wandered through the land such kindly care i've nowhere had as was bestowed upon this lad the mother to her girl did cry Now do not walk, my child, but fly up to our storeroom in the loft and bring down bolster and pillow soft. These things upon the stove were spread to make a warm, luxurious bed that he might rest upon the same until the time for dinner came. When Helmbrecht had awaked again, the dinner was prepared, and then he washed his hands. I'll now relate what food was placed before his plate. I'll name the course they first set down, Were I a man of high renown, I'd always most contented be if this same dish were served to me. As fine-cut kraut as you will find, and fat and lean, there was each kind, came with this dish, the best of meat. Now hear what food he next did eat. A soft and ripe and fatty cheese was served and cut, the youth to please. A third dish followed then, to wit, as fat a goose as air on spit was roasted at a kitchen fire. The parents did not seem to tire. They did this all with best of will. This fowl had grown so large until t'was big as ever buzzard is, and now the youth could call it his. A boiled hen and a roasted one, as Helmbrecht's father ordered done, were now brought on the groaning board. Such food would surely please a lord. He'd glad enough eat just the same while in his blind he ambushed game. Many other dishes, too the like a peasant never knew. Foods fine and good as could be had were now served up before the lad. The father said, If I had wine, we'd drink it now, dear son of mine. Instead, loved Helmbrecht take for drink this fine spring water. Best, I think, that ever from the earth did flow. No equally good spring I know, except the Vanghaus spring so clear, but no one brings its waters here. While thus they joyfully all ate, the father could no longer wait. He asked his son to tell the sort of life he had observed at court where he was present while away. Tell what court life is like today, and I in turn will tell you then how I, long years ago and when I still my youthful years enjoyed, observed how nights their time employed. You, father, tell that first to me, and I shall then tell willingly whatever you may ask me to. Of customs I know much that's new. When I was young, long years ago, your grandpa Helmbrecht, as you know, this is the name my father had, sent me to court, though but a lad, with eggs and with his cheeses too, just as a peasant still will do, and many knights I saw those days, observed their customs and their ways. Those knights were courtly, stately men, and knew no knavish evil then, as in these times so many do. So many men, and women too, one picturesque and knightly way, one favor with the ladies gay. Tourney is what they called the game. A courtier gave to me its name when I requested him to tell about this sport they liked so well. They rode as though their ire were raised, because of this I heard them praised. One group rode here, the other there, against each other, pair and pair, as though to thrust each from his horse. Among my comrades, I, of course, had never witnessed any sort of game like this I saw at court. When they had finished with the lance, they trod the measures of a dance accompanied by dashing song. To no one did the time seem long. Forth stepped a fiddler, then straightway, who for the dance began to play. The ladies then did all arise, a sight to gladden moping eyes. The knight stepped forth towards beauty's band and clasped their partners by the hand. There was an overflow of charm. Fair ladies led on knighthood's arm. A pretty feast for eyes to see. And in the dance, joined merrily young men and maidens, poor and rich. It did not seem to matter which. The dance then over, from the crowd, someone stepped forth and read aloud about Duke Ernest. At the close, Whatever each one present chose for pleasure, that he found to do. Some shot with bow and arrow, too, toward distant targets that were set. And there were other pleasures yet. Some hunted game, some chased the hind. Who then was worst in every kind of skill would be the best today. Ah, in those days so far away, good faith was prized. And honor, too. Ere Falseness spoiled these through and through. The false and loose and evil men, who with their knavish cunning then knew how to make the wrong seem right, the knights did not permit in sight to dine at court in honor's guise. Today, that one is counted wise who can deceive and lie. In short, he is a valued man at court. Wins honor and wins money, too. Far more unhappily tis true than does a man who lives upright and strives for favor in God's sight. This much of older ways I know, and now the favor to me show, loved son, and tell me of the new. In truth, and that I'll do for you, this is the present nightly way. Drink, comrade, drink again, I say. Drain your goblet, I'll drain mine, will be the better for the wine. Now listen, this is what I mean. Of yore, the worthy knights were seen where pretty ladies lingered round. Today, they're always to be found where wine is kept for sale. And there, this constitutes their only care. As even morn they drinking sit, how they can quickest see to it, if once the kegs they empty drain, that their good host new stores may gain of wine as stout and heady to keep their spirits ready." This is the minnesong they sing. Come, barmaid, pretty little thing, our cups must overflowing be. A monkey and a fool were he whose body ever should incline to worship women more than wine. He who can lie has good address. Deceiving, that is courtliness. He counts as skilled whose edged tongue can maliciously insult a man. Who curses others like a knave is deemed both virtuous and brave. Believe me, father, it is true. Old-fashioned people such as you are now all under social ban. They are to woman and to man about as welcome company as is the hangman wont to be. The ban itself is but a joke. Ah, mercy God, the father spoke, be it lamented in our prayers that wickedness so much now dares. The former jousts are in disgrace, and new ones occupy their place. Before, one heard them call out gay, Hello, sir knight, on to the fray. But now they cry the whole day through, Pursue them, knight, chase and pursue, Thrust and thrust and slay and slay, Thrust out the eyes that see the day, Strike off a foot there where it stands, And here, hew off a pair of hands. Hang this fellow here for me, catch the rich men that you see. "'They'll yield a hundred pounds or so. "'These customs very well I know. "'I trow I could, did I incline, "'relate much more, dear father mine, "'that's new about such ways. "'Twill keep. "'I've ridden far, and I must sleep. "'Tonight I am in need of rest.' "'They did all things at his request. "'Of sheets the household knew no trace. "'A fresh-washed shirt, then, in its place, "'which Sister Gautiland had kept, "'she spread upon his bed.' He slept until the following morning late. What he did then, I'll next narrate. As one might very well expect, young Helmbrecht now the table decked with all the gifts of every sort that he had brought along from court for father and mother and sister too. And of a truth, if you but knew what these consisted of, I'm quite convinced that you would laugh outright. His father, he brought a new wetting stone. No mower could a better own to tie and handle with a band, a scythe so fine that peasant's hand ne'er swung the like of it through hay, a peasant's jim in every way. A hatchet in his hand he laid, and never had a better blade or one so good been forged by smith. He gave him, too, a hoe therewith. Among these things another was a skin for his mother. Helmbrecht, with a stunning whack, had stripped it from a fat priest's back. What Helmbrecht stole or took as prey I'll not conceal in any way although I may not know the whole. From a traveling mercer, too, he stole a very handsome silken band, which now he put in Gautiland's hand, as well as gold-embroidered lace that far more suitably would grace some noble's child who knew no stint than Helmbrecht's sister Gautiland. The hired man, Helmbrecht brought lace shoes, but for him he ne'er would choose to carry such coarse things along or even touch a dirty thong. He was so courtly, Had he stayed at home to be his father's aid, he would have left him bare of foot. In the hired maid's hand he put a neckerchief and ribbon red, two things that stood her in good stead. How long, you now would have me say, did Helmbrecht with his father stay? But seven days, it is the truth. It seemed a whole year to the youth since he had taken any prey, so now he made all haste to say goodbye to father, mother both. No, no, dear son, the father quoth, if you but think that you can live with what I own and have to give until my efforts here are done, then sit and wash your hands, dear son, go in and out as pleases you, with court life have no more to do, T'will bitter prove as you will see, much rather I'd a peasant be than some retainer of a court who no farm rental gets, in short, who must for once and all prepare to forage for his daily fare, must scurry round, now there, now here, and constantly endure the fear that if his foes once capture him, they'll hang him to the nearest limb. Father, spoke the handsome lad, for the welcome I have had, sincere and cordial thanks of mine. But since the time I last drank wine, a week or more's already passed. Because of this extended fast, my belt is three holes smaller now beef I must have from toothsome cow before my buckle goes once more back to the place where it was before. I'll spoil the day of many a plow and take as booty many a cow before I give my body rest to round out nicely to its best. There is a certain wealthy man who's given me insult greater than anyone I've ever seen. Godfather's crops of tender green I saw him ride across of late, Now, well he knew if he'd but wait, his pay must be an ample one. His cattle very soon must run, his sheep and also all his swine, that for this god-sire loved of mine, he trampled down his hard-earned grain. This makes me feel the deepest pain. I know another rich man who is offended deeply too, for with his crawlers he ate bread. If I don't punish this, I'm dead. According to a footnote by Bell, Quote, the eating of cake with common bread was considered an offense against good taste. End quote. A third rich man is known to me, and no one quite so much as he has hurt my feelings, I declare. Not even would a bishop's prayer persuade me vengeance to forego, his conduct has offended so. His father asked him, What is that? While at his table still he sat, he opened wide his belt, the boar. Hi ho for that you may be sure, all that's his I'll snatch away. "'His beasts shall all be mine one day, that haul his cart and drag his plow. "'They'll help me, so that I shall now for Christmas have fine clothes to hand. "'How did he think that I would stand such insults? "'Oh, the triple fool! "'He, and another empty skull who's hurt my deepest feelings so. "'If unavenged I'd let this go, then let them call me Slave of Fear.' He, drinking from a mug his beer, blew from its top the gathered foam. Did I not pay such insult home? With ladies I should have no worth, and never more about my girth should I deserve to hang a sword. And now, full soon, you shall have word of me, and of the swath I'll cut. Many a farmyard I shall gut, and if my man is gone that day, I'll drive his stock off anyway. The father said, "'I'd thankful be, my son, if now you'll name to me your comrades all, "'the fellows who have taught you it's the thing to do "'to take revenge upon rich men and confiscate their cattle "'when with crullers they perhaps eat bread. "'I'd like to hear their names,' he said. "'There's Lammerslint, a comrade fair, and Schlucktenwitter. "'that's the pair from whom I've learned to know the trade. "'I'll name you other friends I've made. "'There's Hullensack and Rutelschrein.' These both were teachers too of mine. There's Maustenkelch, Kufras as well. Now, father, you have heard me tell with what fine blades it is I mix. Already, I have named you six. Wolfskalms, another comrade, he, no matter what his love may be for cousin, uncle, aunt, or whether it be February weather, leaves no thread upon their form, man or woman, to keep them warm, or even cover up their shame." Strangers and kin, he treats the same. Valfs Russell, he's a man of skill. Without a key, he bursts at will the neatest fastened iron box. Within one year, I've seen the locks of safes, at least a hundred such, spring wide ajar without a touch at his approach. I can't say how. Horse, ox, and also many a cow, far more than I can tell about, from barn and farm he's driven out. For when he'd merely toward it start, each lock would quickly spring apart. I've still one further comrade, sire, and never did a knight's good squire win for himself such courtly name. He had it from a wealthy dame, a duchess of most high degree, who's known as Nonaranari. This comrade's name is Vulsdahn, and whether it be cold or warm, he cannot pillage to his fill, for theft so gratifies his will, his thirst for it he cannot slake. No footstep does he ever take away from evil toward the good. With instinct sure, his spirit would strive toward bad and vicious deed, as does a crow to new-sown seed. The father said, Now I would learn what name they have for you in turn, each one of your comrades gay, when there is something he would say. Father mine, this is my name, for which I feel no need of shame. My comrades call me Schlingdasgoy. I seldom bring the peasants joy that in our neighborhood are found. Their children, where I've been around, eat water soup that's thin and flat. I make them suffer more than that. I quickly press the one's eyes out. On others' backs I lay about. Across an ant's nest one I stake. Another's beard I jerking take with pincers piecemeal from his face. Break this one's limbs in many a place. Tear that one's scalp off while he squeals, String up by the tendons of his heels another one, With withes for twine. All that the peasants have is mine, Where we ten comrades ride along, What, though our foe be twenty strong or even more, And stalwart men, they're soon laid low by our bold ten. My son, these comrades that you name, Although it's true you know the same better than do I, my child, However bold they are and wild, if watchful God ordains it so, the sheriff, as you well must know, can make them go where'er he will, and where they thrice his number still. Father, what till now I've done, not for a king or any one will I continue any more. Geese and chicken by the score, your cattle, cheeses and your hay, for you and mother till today I've saved from all my friends for you. Now this I will no longer do, for you've offended far too much the honor of my comrades, such as no misdeeds have ever done in robbing goods of anyone. Had not you so complained and carped and on our evil doings harped, to Lammerslint, as I had planned, I should have given Gottlint's hand. To Lammerslint, my comrade good, she'd had the finest livelihood that any woman ever won with husband since the world begun." Furs, mantles, best of linen, too, as fine as ever churchmen knew, should have been hers in ample measure, had you not, in your displeasure, slanders on us wished to speak. And Gotland would have had each week, if she had wished, the freshest meat from newly slaughtered cow to eat. Sister Gotland, now hear, when Lammerslint, my comrade dear, first sought to gain your hand through me, I answered unreservedly, As things with you and her now stand, Believe me, if you win her hand, This you will never have to rue. I know that Gautilent's so true, Of this you need not anxious be, That if you're hanged once on a tree, Herself she'll cut the rope in two, Will drag you off and bury you Nearby where crossing roads do meet, With myrrh and burning incense sweet. You may be sure of this all right, She will encircle you each night, For one whole year or thereabout and you may know beyond all doubt, she'll smoke your bones when none else would, your bones which are so pure and good. But if by fortune you are left, and of your eyesight are bereft, she'll guide your footsteps through the land, through paths and bypaths with her hand. If you should lose a foot or two, the crutches which are used by you, each morning to your bed she'll bear. And you need also feel no care if with the foot they cut from you One hand or more is lopped off too. As long as you still live to eat, she'll cut for you your bread and meat. Lamerslint then spoke, said he, If Gautlint says yes to me, to her a dowry I shall give, so that the better she may live. Three well-filled sacks belong to me, they weigh like lead, these sacks all three. One's full of uncut cloth, she'll find the finest linen of its kind. If one should buy a yard in trade, Fifteen good kreutzers would be paid. This gift she certainly will prize. The second sack will please her eyes with veils and skirts and many a waist, and poverty no more shall taste if we are man and wife. I swear I'll give her all these things to wear upon the very following day, and all I take henceforth is prey. The third sack bulges to its brim, stuffed full up to its very rim with finest cloths and feathery fur. And there will also be for her two mantles that are scarlet-lined, and outside trimming she will find of sable fur, both soft and black. I've safely hidden each stuffed sack in a ravine not far away. I'll give her these without delay. <sighs> Your father's ruined all I'd planned. May God protect you with his hand. You're like to lead a bitter life, if any peasant as his wife should take you. You are very sure the direst hardship to endure. You'll flail his grain, your strength he'll tax, and you must swing and beat his flax. You'll dig your husband's beats up, too. All this would have been spared to you by my true comrade Lammerslint. Alas, dear sister Gautilint, the grief must truly pain me deep if each night through henceforth you sleep against your heart uncouthly pressed against a peasant's coarse ignoble breast. His love you'll find a bitter gall. Weapons, weapons, this I call aloud upon your father's head. He's not my father, be it said, and this in very truth I speak. For when, through but the fifteenth week within her mother carried me, there came to her, quite stealthily, a polished knightly man from court. So I inherit from such sort, and from the man who sponsored me, blessed may their memories be, the lofty thoughts and knightly ways which I shall show through all my days. His sister Gotland then said, Neither am I his child. Instead there was, I know, another who once lay by my mother. A clever knight, as I've heard say, while still beneath her heart I lay. He caught her on his pleasure bent when late at eventide she went to seek her calves in brush nearby. Thus tis, my spirit is so high. Dearest brother Schlingdusgoy." The good lord fill your heart with joy, thus continued Gautilint. Please do your best that Lammerslint be given me as wedded man. There'll be a crackling in my pan, my grapes will all be gathered in, and filled shall be each chest and bin. The best brewed beer will then abound, my meal shall be most finely ground. If those three sacks my stock increase, from poverty I'll have release. With food to eat, good clothes to wear, no pinch I'll suffer anywhere. I'll thus have everything in store that woman wished from man before, and I can give a husband, too, all that is a husband's due from a wife of sturdy kind. All this he'll in my body find. For what he wants I do not lack. My father merely holds me back. My body's three times firmer, sure, than was my sister's to endure when in marriage she was manned, and yet next morning she could stand and did not die from overwork. And so I think I need not shirk, for death will never lay me low unless by some far harder blow. Brother mine and comrade true, what I now discuss with you, for love of me to no one say, I'll go with you the narrow way that leads through pines up to the hill. I'll lie by him and do his will, and know that all of this I'll dare, spite relatives and parents' care. This talk the father did not hear. "'Nor was the young girl's mother near. "'The brother counseled what to do. "'Twas quickly settled by the two "'that she should follow him from thence. "'I'll give to you, "'though offense and pain to father it may bring, "'you'll wed my comrade, "'honoring yourself and him by that mere act, "'and this will bring the wealth you've lacked. "'Now would you see this to the end, "'then back again to you I'll send a messenger "'as guide to you. "'You like my friend? "'He likes you too.' With mutual love you must succeed in every undertaken deed. The wedding plans on me shall rest, and in your honor every guest a waist or jacket shall receive. This shall be done, you may believe. Do you prepare now, Gautilint? The same I'll say to Lemmerslint. God keep you, I must go, said he. I like my host as he does me. God's blessings, mother, on your head. Along his old paths Helmbrecht sped, And gave at once to Lammerslint the pleased consent of Gotland. His happiness scarce knew a bound. He kissed his friend around and round, then bowed down low against the wind that blew to him from Gaulund. So, what do you make of the children of old Meyer Helmbrecht, son and daughter? They're real quick to basically disown themselves. Uh, Indeed, they actually disclaim their true paternity. Kind of. Uh, I've looked through several different articles and book chapters on medieval beliefs about heredity, and while I saw a number of the well-known biological misconceptions about how babies are made, uh, such as... Things that the mother sees or eats while pregnant having an effect on the traits of the child. I couldn't find any other documentation of the specific idea floated here that the already conceived embryo could take on the traits of a man who had intercourse with the pregnant mother and who wasn't the father who, you know, caused the conception in the first place. Now, there was a belief that a godparent could pass on traits to their godchildren, especially moral traits. Uh, and back in the first part of the story, young Helmbrecht referenced exactly that as one of the reasons he had the nature of a knight instead of a peasant. And when I say pass on traits, I don't mean by being a good role model or teaching the children to have certain behaviors. Uh, this superstition covers things like Godparents shouldn't carry knives to the christening because that might cause the child to grow up to be a robber. But that's still a bit different from the more biological process that Helmbrecht and Goteland are suggesting here. If any of you know of other medieval sources that discuss this two fathers idea of heredity, uh, please pass them on to me. And again, the nature of the poem makes it hard to tell if this is a genuine representation of a popular belief or if it's a comically absurd belief that highlights how desperate these two peasant children are to remove themselves from their peasant lineage. Though, some of you might be finding it rather challenging to feel the comedy after having just seen who the new improved young Helmbrecht is, or should I say, Schlingdaskoy. And note how Godalind there instantly jumps to using his new name, basically his street name, for lack of a better term. She is on board for this new identity, basically from the word go. Also, I'll run through the meanings of the names of the rest of the street gang in a little bit. Uh, but since we're here, Schlingdasgoi translates to devour the land. And I think it's notable that our first description of this new squire Helmbrecht is this. His plundering became so grim, what others scarcely would attack, he thrust within his greedy sack. He's presented to us as the guy who's willing to go beyond the normal bounds of plundering. He will devour the land, everything, indiscriminately. And this trait seemingly wins him much favor with his new friends. And Helmbrecht going too far also emerges through two moments of threatening language, So first he talks about how this present generation of knights is not so delicate in their tournaments as the ones his father witnessed. Uh, They revel in a much more bloodthirsty sport, calling for fighting to the death, and also putting out people's eyes, and cutting off feet, and going after rich men to capture and hold for ransom. Then, later on, when young Helmbrecht, or Schlingdaskoy, describes what he's known for in the gang... He recapitulates many of these same things, though now targeting peasants. He's putting out eyes. He's beating people, hanging people. But he's also now staking them across ants' nests, scalping them, pulling their beards out with pincers, and breaking their bones. The escalated violence of the tournament is brutal, but it still just about fits into the categories of conventional combat injuries and outcomes. Helmbrecht has crossed the line over into the realm of torture. Now, again, in terms of the law, it could well be the legal prerogative of a lord or an agent of a lord to torture a lower subject if they deemed it fit to do so. Typically, the form of law, at least, would still require a reason to be given for such an act, but Helmbrecht illustrates for us just how petty and trivial those justifications could be bad table manners is enough. But regardless of whether he's in his legal rights to do this, his father, and presumably the audience for this poem too, recognize that he is violating a norm of acceptable behavior, uh, to put it lightly. I do think there is a kind of sociopathic sadism that comes out in the almost tangible glee that Helmbrecht seems to take in describing this violence he doles out, uh, not just as a way to bring tasty food back to the castle, but with a palpable contempt for these people, at once his own people, that he looks so far down on now. And also his outrage at being challenged on the merits of his violence, uh, so that he tells his father that now father and mother both, and farm too, Our fair game for that same kind of violence points to a a kind of narcissism, uh, all just because Dad had the gall to imply that this night's men are committing crimes and that the sheriff will be coming for them. This moment also gives us a sharp insight into what young Helmbrecht's ethical code is. When he talks about honor, there's no morality to it. It's all about social status. For him, honor is not really something practiced but merely a status that can be slighted or disrespected. You can see him twist the conception of honor around. So when his father calls the gang's actions criminal, young Helmbrecht responds by saying that this insult, a peasant calling them out, is more dishonorable than any of the actions themselves. Uh, And this is right after he's listed all the types of torture he inflicts on people. Also, uh, though in the three estates theory of society, the knights and nobility were supposed to be responsible for maintaining the peace of the realm and essentially serving as a form of law enforcement, all the violations that Helmbrecht is policing are not crimes. He's not confiscating treasure from bandits or usurers. Uh, He's not even punishing adultery or impiety. He's violently attacking people over table manners which again are presented as direct affronts to nobility. They aren't crimes, they're just insults. Honor for him seems to be little more than a framework for registering instances of disrespect, of cataloging grievances so that these can be used to justify the violence and plundering that he commits. It creates a kind of self-reinforcing feedback loop, where the slightest provocation produces an extreme reaction and any additional resistance or complaint about that reaction just escalates the reaction further. If he's already robbing you and maybe breaking your legs because you blew foam off of your beer, what do you think he'd do if you protested his treatment of you? This is not a dynamic that leads to resolution and closure. It is destined to flame out spectacularly in one way or another. I've just called Young Helmbrecht a sociopath, but there are other ways to approach his psychology. Evelyn Jacobson has argued that the poem portrays him as a person who does not appreciate abstract meaning and understands the world almost entirely through physical experience and sensation. He shows no appreciation of the epic stories uh, and their themes that are embroidered on his hat. He only thinks of them as lavish ornamentation that give the hat value. And then he gets that value when he wears the hat. When he first argues with his father, as we heard last episode, his father talks about knighthood using a rhetoric of honor and piety, but young Helmbrecht talks about the prospects of the courtly life in terms of appearance and appetite. He's fixated on physical comforts and tangible signs of status. And in the dialogue we heard today, we see young Helmbrecht using foreign phrases purely for show, as a kind of token of social capital rather than to communicate linguistic meaning. He has the same relationship to Flemish that he has to the imagery from the Iliad that's featured on his hat. It's just a token that conveys his superior status. He shows no appreciation of its actual meaning. And that's something we still see in satires of the nouveau riche today, Uh, You get a scene of them buying fine art or fine wine, and not really appreciating it. Here you go, big spender. Foie gras and caviar. Goose liver? Fish eggs? Where's the goose? Where's the fish? Hey, that's what rich people eat. The garbage parts of the food. I ate garbage yesterday, and it didn't cost me $300. I'm not paying. Farewell, good sir. So, before the text, I asked you to think about whether the story of young Helmbrecht is a comic satire about a foolish kid who gets swept up in a bad crowd and is destined to be humbled a little bit and brought back down to his appropriate lowly status. Uh, You know, is he a kind of slightly more violent bottom from A Midsummer Night's Dream? Or is this a tragic moral tale uh, an after-school special about one man's nightmarish descent into moral depravity, which will also lead to an ultimate downfall, uh, perhaps with a much harder impact at the bottom. Well, spoiler alert, but George Nordmeyer's conclusion is that this poem is essentially both. It's a tragic comedy that's smirking at peasant arrogance at the same time that it is unflinching in spooling out the consequences of the tragic flaw of hubris, of not knowing and keeping to your station, and indeed, of not remembering who you stepped on on the way up. And in terms of that kind of tragic comedy, as we'll see in the conclusion of the story next time, Meyer Helmbrecht kind of works in its narrative and satirical structure like a medieval version of A Clockwork Orange. After all, Aren't Schlingdaskoy and his fellow Droogs out there just to get a little bit of the old violence? And speaking of those Droogs, I promised you a rundown of the names of Devour the Land's Comrades. Uh, so here they are, as given by Claire Hayden Bell. Uh, these names also give you a very quick portrait of the gang's chief activities. So, Lammerslint, the soon-to-be bridegroom of Gotelint, is Lamb Swallower. In vida is Bolt the Ram. Hullensack is Hell's Bag. Uh, Rutil shrine is Pry the Chest. Maustenkelch is Pinch the Communion Cup, or Church Robber. Uh, Kufras is Cow Glutton. Valfsgaum is Wolf Jaws. Valfs Russell is Wolf Gullet. And Valfs Darm is Wolf Gut. Lots of hungry wolves in this gang. It doesn't exactly sound like the most helpful and pleasant and virtuous crowd for a young person to throw in with. Well, while we're in the word meaning mode, let's look at this episode's mystery word. Our mystery word today is krut, C-R-U-Circumflex-T, krut. I'm breaking with our extended alphabetical exploration for this word, uh, though we're really getting to the end of the line for that anyway. But this is a word from the central scene in today's text, and I wanted to talk linguistically about it, so hey, let's make it our mystery word. And it will be our first Middle High German word, which is rather late in coming on the show for such a major medieval vernacular. Crut is more recognizable in its modern German form, kraut, In its oldest sense, kraut just means vegetable or herb. Uh, It later comes to be a term for the big vegetable, cabbage. It's similar to how cattle, which in Middle English meant property of any kind, narrowed to mean the main important kind of movable property, livestock, and thence narrowed further in the 1500s to the most important kind of livestock, cows and bulls. Uh, Or how deor in Old English, uh, and still in its cognates in most Germanic languages today, just means animal, but by the 1400s, it had become deer and just referred to the chief kind of game hunted in the forest, the hart and hind, or the doe and stag. Now, in modern German, as I understand it from what I've read, uh, kraut both means cabbage, though I gather it's more commonly used that way in a prepared sense, like a dish of cabbage, Um, And it also still has that sense of an herb or small plant. Old English does not have, as best as I can tell, a cognate word with kraut, but it did have cowl, which leads to both the modern call in cauliflower and the kohl in coleslaw. Kohl, K-O-H-L, is the modern German word generally used to refer to a whole cabbage and it has cognates in the other Germanic languages, as we find in English coal. All these Germanic coals derive originally from Latin callus, meaning stalk or stem, uh, particularly of cabbage. In Middle English, you could still find coal being used as the word for cabbage, but French once again exerts its influence over the English culinary lexicon, and in the 1400s, Middle English adopt caboshe, from French, meaning head, uh, presumably cognate with cabeza in Spanish and derived from the Latin caput, uh, though there seems to be some uncertainty about that. Anyway, over the next century or so, caboche becomes cabbage and pushes coal into the marginal space uh, of survival in some regional dialects and in compounds like coleslaw and cauliflower. Those of you who follow me on Twitter might have seen about a month ago a post about the etymology of mustard, inspired by trying some Grey Poupon-flavored ice cream, uh, which is just another example of this same phenomenon of a Germanic form of a food word, uh, in this case synep, being pushed out of English in favor of a Romance word, mustard. And just like with coal, even the Germanic word comes from Latin originally, so you have Usually two different Latin roots kind of fighting for dominance a thousand years down the line. If you want the fuller tale of mustard and to find out what mustard ice cream is like, uh, follow me on Twitter at MDT Podcast and scroll back to June 18th of this year. Curiously, the modern French word for cabbage is chou, which also traces back to Latin callus after a few consonant sound changes. So modern French retains the coal branch of cabbage words. And one last fun bit of trivia. In English, of course, we've borrowed kraut via sauerkraut, uh, one of my favorite condiments slash side dishes and central to one of my top five favorite sandwiches, the Reuben. Sauerkraut simply means sour or fermented cabbage. It's a very literal description. You see some stem variation in other languages, such as in the Scandinavian languages, which typically go with variations on sur kohl, swapping in coal for the kraut. Um, and I think even in German, there are some regional variations that use coal. Uh, but the fun case is French, where the word for sauerkraut is choucroute, which literally translating its stems is just cabbage, cabbage. It's the coal stem plus the kraut stem. But we shouldn't just pick on French. Spanish and Portuguese have basically the same construction. Though of the other major Romance languages, Italian and Romanian uh, do not do this. Italian just has krauty, and Romanian goes with varza murata, which is clearly coming from totally elsewhere. Uh, And of course, English is guilty of redundancies when describing foreign foods, such as when we say chai tea. Uh, Or indeed, even with domestic foods, when we say head of cabbage, inasmuch as cabbage itself means kaboche, head. Uh, I like to boil a head of head with my corned beef. Well, that brings us to the end of this second of three episodes exploring the satirical and maybe tragicomic short epic Meyer Helmbrecht. I've already mentioned where you can find me on Twitter, you can also reach me by email at Patrick at And at that website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, you can get more information about this and every episode, including references for texts read and mentioned. You can also help support the show on Patreon. All of our Patreon patrons get access to bonus audio content, including our audiobook of Jordanus' Wonders of the East. Uh, we've had one new patron join us since last episode, Thank you very much, Josh. Your support is appreciated and helps make this show possible. If any of you would like to join Josh, you can find out more at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or just search for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. Well, until next time, may all your crowd be sour and all your worst be brought, and thanks for listening.